Hey, what's up? Welcome to the 32nd episode of Two Riders Slinging the A. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, and a columnist for The Athletic. The music you're listening to is Croissant's Master by the great MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from journalism to songwriting to screenwriting to novels to romance to comics to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And today's guest is John Wertheim, the Sports Illustrated executive editor, one of the best sports writers of this generation, and a man who, in no small way, is responsible for the existence of my kids. That sounds kind of weird, but I'll explain. John and I arrived at SI back around the same time in the mid-1990s, and I consider him one of my truly good friends. And today, we're going to handle a wide range of subjects, from his recent groundbreaking reporting on Jerry Richardson and the Carolina Panthers, to the Portland jailbreakers of the early 2000s, to the best ways to approach the story. So hey, let's get going, right now, on Two Writers Slinging the Egg. All right, John, we're sitting in your uh, hotel room in Santa Monica, California, and uh, it's funny, we both started Sports Illustrated back in 96. You got there in 96 as well, right? Or did you get there in 95? The summer intern in 96, so 97 I started. You started. So so we basically started, well, I started December of 96. I think you got there a little I'll tell you a crazy story to start. Yeah. This is, talk about different era in media. Yeah. I basically, Sports Illustrated basically paid for my third year of law school. How'd that happen? I worked, I did some freelance stories, and I'd go to the office once a week yeah. through, for my third year of law school. Uh-huh. And there was sort of on the, was well, formal, but on the expectation I would work there full-time when I graduated. So, uh, you know, I was, whatever, 23 years old, and I was getting a check every other week from Sports Illustrated while I was a law student. We, we don't do that anymore. Yeah, so uh, you would not be relic, paying for anything. Relic, another, relic <laughs> of another era. Well, I just want to say, before I even get into asking about sports... Literally, my kids do not exist if I don't know get hired at SI and meet you because I actually met my oh, wife. Stop. She was she was factually the maid of honor at your wedding. You don't think there's something cosmic and you would have met your <laughs> wife uh, regardless. The funny thing is, so she was a maid of honor at their wedding. I was a fringe guest. I was like the friend from work at the time. Stop, come on. Ellie, come your on. wife, didn't even want me at the wedding. She's like, come why on. is this guy at the wedding? And the best part is... Um, Years later, she acknowledged that it was a good thing. But she told me, when I remember meeting her on the line at your wedding and her being like, oh, it's good to meet you. Like she clearly, you know, oh, friends guest at the wedding. But I saw my wife there. It took you four months to introduce me to her. I was like, can you, can you give me the number? Can you give me the number? And four months, it took you four months to yeah, give me the number. Yeah, look, uh, look how that happened. Don't yeah. you think there should be something? There's a great premise for a show or a movie about who would you invite to your wedding 10 years hence. Oh, we always talk about I mean, there are all that. those people where you're like, I can't believe they weren't at my wedding. And there are other people where you're like, wait, what was her name again? Right. What uh, percentage of the people at your wedding, let's say you had 200 people at your wedding, what percentage of that wedding uh, is held today are invited? Um, <laughs> let's just say there'd be some lineup, there'd be some roster changes. <laughs> the roster would be in flux. We always talk about that. So um, you've obviously had a long, very distinguished career at Sports Illustrated. We came up together, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I want to get specifically into one story. I like digging into digging into stories. And you told me I was actually sitting in a car in Minnesota. It was about 10 degrees outside, freezing my ass off. And you told me this story was coming out. And uh, it's called Full Disclosure. It came out a couple weeks ago. We're at the subhead is Panthers owner Jerry Richardson was an NFL pillar. But in one shocking weekend, his reputation crumbled. He announced his selling his team after SI's report on payouts made to cover his up his sexually suggestive and racially insensitive behavior. Uh 
how'd this even come to be? How'd you, how'd you end up doing this? Um, so you're talking about the, the you're reading the print piece. Yes. So, yeah. um, yeah, I, I mean, this, you know, it's hard to divorce this from the, the Me Too moment we're having. Um, and we had gotten a tip that there were some confidential settlements. I had to be really careful talking about this story, by the way, just because okay. of the nature of these confidential settlements. Right. They're really, I mean, I get it. They're legal documents. They're really good at chilling speech, which is, of course, their intent. So I really have to be careful about okay. not identifying, sourcing, and, and so forth. But, um, but you get a call or a tip or so, something? Yeah, we had a tip, and there, there's a woman who I collaborated with who did terrific work, Viv Bergstein, who works, um, she used to work at the Times and now lives in Charlotte, and we collaborated, and it was just one of those stories where you, you pull on one piece of string and another um, sort of unravels. It really, it really reminded me how rewarding investigative journalism is, but also how tricky and fraught. And I, I always say, people always say, you know, I went to journalism school. And, um, and that's great. You know, there, there's a lot to recommend, but I always yeah. feel like one of the great ironies of that is there are really so few rules of journalism. You know, it's, it's be accurate, right. be fair, be empathetic, but every story has a different set of circumstances, and every story has different sort of conditions for sourcing and relationships that you have to consider. I mean, I, all these stories about the Weinstein reporting, and do you tell one source that you want to let them know that they're not the only person on the record, but you also want to let them, you, know, you don't want to give the identity of other people away. There was a lot of that going on. But basically what we had was we established a pattern where both sexual harassment and in one case a racial, you know, a racial epithet um, was used by Jerry Richardson, the team owner. He had carved these confidential settlements with um, the accusers. And again, I, I don't think they would have been emboldened a year ago. I think a lot of this came out of this this Me Too moment we're having. But um, the story came together. The Panthers put out, I don't know if you remember me, you were traveling. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was a very strange, I mean, the, the, the Panthers got wind that we were working on this, which I assume they would. You make, you know, you make a dozen, two dozen, three dozen phone calls and one person's going to get back to the team. They released a statement on Friday night saying they were conducting an internal investigation uh, that sort of accelerated the process. The story was pretty much ready to go. We gave them a day to respond. They didn't respond, and on a Sunday, right around kickoff, we published the story online. So there's a lot going on. I mean, one of the things is that in pre-internet, this obviously plays out with much different metabolism, but it was really remarkable to me. We posted this story, whatever it was, 1 o'clock on a Sunday, and by dinner time, Jerry Richardson announced he was selling the team. So... Um, now, do you it was, hold off? It was off, a wild day. When you're reporting this, was it like you have this information, you have this information, you have this information? Are you hoping? Are you hoping the Panthers only find out you have this stuff when you're ready for them to respond? You know, like, do you are you trying to reach Richardson? Why are you reporting this? Do you not need to reach Richardson? Why are you reporting this? Like, how are you? You have the Panthers over here, and you have right. all this information on the other side. Like, how, you know they're going to cross over at some point. How do you sort of yeah, handle that? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And obviously, you, you strategize and you think about timing. And you again, you want to be fair. You don't want to say, hey, listen, you guys have 30 minutes or we're hitting the send button. At the same time, you do want to do your reporting before you go to the to the team. Mm -hmm. Again, the, But do you want them to and, not you know, know you're doing the reporting? Yeah, I mean, I, I think initially, yes. I mm -hmm. think you want people to 
to speak freely and not feel... Pre- and it, what ended up, we heard from multiple sources, that the team, once they got wind of this, they were calling present and past employees and saying, please don't speak, we encourage you not to speak. Maybe it had even been a little more coercive than that. Um, at the same time, you do a story like this. And again, liking this to any of these investigative stories now, you, you call 20 women who work for Miramax and you sort of proceed with the expectation that one of them is loyal to Harvey Weinstein is going to report back that, hey, the New York Times called me. So I think, um, you know, realistically, you want to do as much reporting absent the team knowing, but you also have to be realistic that you're going to step on a landmine eventually. Do you ever feel like a, uh, when you're making the calls and you're trying to find the information on this guy, like we've both had these experiences many, many times where you're just calling this list of people, um, hoping someone will talk, people will talk, people will talk, people will talk. Um, how do you approach that? Like, how do you, how are you approaching people to get them to open up to you? A person they literally do not know, have never met before, um, knowing that their material is going to end up being read by millions of people. Yeah. I mean, I give it, it's, this was a little different than cold calling, which you and I have done too. Uh-huh. I'm just, I don't know if you saw the, the post. You see no, post? not yet. Um, well, there, there's an instance and we've all been through this where you've got 20 names and mm-hmm. you're cold calling and the 19th person picks up. I hate um, that. What? I don't enjoy it. Um, I don't enjoy the cold call. I enjoy the knocking on the door much more than calling. Even in pursuit of truth? No, no. I enjoy the byproduct, but I don't love the anxiety of the phone. Um, I mean, this was a little different in the sense that we had some tips and we had some leads, and I think in some cases they anticipated that we would be calling. So it wasn't as though you went through a phone list or a media guide and were just putting checks and Xs. Mm -hmm. Um, And, yeah, I mean, there is definitely a level of trust. I mean... If we can be candid, and I'm sure we can, um, I, I think having having Viv, I think I think having a, a woman sure. talk to these women who are you know maybe feeling a little vulnerable, I think that probably helped. The internet is your friend. Anyone you know they they Google me while they're talking. I can hear literally the keystrokes. Right. What did you say your name was again? How do you spell that? Which is fine. I would do the exact same thing. I think the internet is your friend, so they can type my name in and see that I really do exist. exist. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's no question there's an element of trust building and, um, I really, I don't take that for granted. I mean, I don't, these, some of these women didn't know me from Adam and took a real, took a real leap and I appreciate that. So the lead to the story, I have it literally, the magazine in front of me. Friday was Jean's day when most staffers at the Carolina Panthers team offices would wear denim to work. The female employees knew what this meant, what that meant. As a team's owner, Jerry Richardson made his rounds on the way to the spacious office. He would ask women to turn around so he could admire their backsides. Then, in a rolling southern drawl, he'd offer comment, drawing from a store of one-liners he'd recycle each week. Among those in heaviest rotation, show me how you wiggle to get those jeans up. I bet you had to lay down on your bed to fit in those jeans. Did you step into those jeans, or did you have to jump into them? Uh, how did you decide to leave with that? Um, I think part of the story was obviously these instances of alleged sexual harassment and, again, this, this racial epithet, which I feel like has kind of gotten lost in the retelling. Yeah. We can save that for later. But the notion that these players on the Panthers are saluting Jerry Richardson still, who called a colleague this racial epithet and, and then essentially came to a confidential settlement for the guy. To, I, I, that's a well, side Right, no, but, yeah. uh, No, as far as the lead, I think part of the story was just who is this guy? I mean, it's a 3,000-word story, so you wanted to give a sense of context. Who is this guy? What was it like to work in this office? And I also think something that was specific to this case of sexual harassment was 
the incrementalism, sort of the grooming. It wasn't like Jerry Richardson came in the office one day and, and was grabby. I mean, there was a real sort of cultural creep. And I don't know if you read the you read the so he, uh-huh. he would send these women handwritten notes, and they would say, "Oh, that, that's really sweet." The owner sent me a note, and they would write back to him, and then the next one would come with, "Here's." Some cash, go buy yourself a massage. He looks a little stressed today. Oh, that's a little weird, but right. you know, it's a nice guy. He's 80 years old. And then from that, it would progress into what was, I think, unambiguously inappropriate. Right. But I think part of the story was obviously the news peg that here's this NFL owner who's cutting these settlement checks to, you know, in response to complaints. But I think some of it too was you really wanted to put the reader, what was it like working for this guy? What was it like being in those offices? And Telling someone, you know, on, on this continuum of harassment and even assault that we've seen, saying how high do you have to jump to get in those jeans is not, you know, a, a, a felony on the order of Harvey Weinstein, but I think it also gives a sense of sort of how this can create a culture that, that bleeds into something worse. When you're working on a story like this, do you, um, do you think to yourself, do you ever, do you have to think to yourself, I don't know, this guy, like I'm about to tear apart this guy's life to a certain degree, like this guy, Jerry Richardson, the story's going to come out, and he's fucked. Like, he's fucked. Like, do you, as a... Does that not matter? Yeah, I don't, I'm No, do you know what I mean? Well, yeah, that's an no, interesting I mean, point. I mean, it's... Uh, no, I mean, again, there's going to be fallout, but mm. I don't I don't feel like this was a hit piece. I mean, I mm. think... I think sometimes you do pieces... It clearly was not a hit piece. Want, but I also think, like, sometimes it's it's based on your assessment or... Yeah, I mean, uh, the rocker piece, for example. Right. You get the feeling he was... Man, that thing comes up in like every fifth episode. But I think think it's it's an interesting contrast to this, where he thinks you're coming to do a feature, and, you know, he basically gets himself in trouble, and is probably startled when, hey, I'm going to be in Sports Illustrated, I spent a day with this this here. we drove around town. This is a little different. First of all, in the sense that I feel like, in some ways, I'm just the conduit here. I'm not making value, John. People are telling me their truths, and I'm sort of trying to paint a picture, but I, I, it, it didn't really enter my thinking that boy Jerry Richardson's going to have some explaining to do after the story comes out. He's on his yacht right now crying. He's very upset. It's very, I gotta say, it's, it's, it's strange to me that he, I don't, I mean, I don't know when we're, we're talking on a Monday. This was already three weeks ago, four weeks ago, three weeks ago. Um, it's all been through statements. So you figure he either comes out and you apologize. I mean, you think about how these others have played out. In some cases, we've even had the preemptive apology. Yeah. We've had the Louis C.K. What these women are said is essentially true, and, and I'm greatly remorseful. We've had denials. This guy really hasn't said anything. Right. Um, it, to me, the response was really unexpected in that you either m- mount a defense or apologize. But he just sort of said, Goodbye. I'm selling the team, and uh, I don't. I don't think he's spoken on the record since this. I wonder if there's some intelligence to that. Like, I would not recognize him walking down the street right now. Maybe if he issued a statement, if he stood before the cameras, blah blah blah. Maybe it actually draws more attention. He can. He has his money. Maybe he's just all right. I'm gonna go away. Yeah. I mean, I think part part of the story too was that this guy's the king of Charlotte. Yeah. This is not oh, the, right. the faceless owner that no. I mean, this is the guy who brought the NFL to foot. I mean, the, brought the NFL to Charlotte. Um, multiple sources said. One of the reasons I'm so reluctant to speak is it might be hard to get another job in this market. Right. Not even in sports. Right. I mean, Jerry Richardson is sort of the, the king of Charlotte. So right. I, I think, yeah, you might not recognize Jerry Richardson, but he's, you know, we see this by the outpouring that came after the 
you know, after, after the Panthers lost their last game, this, this guy's really a revered figure in the Carolinas. Right. Um, you have a law degree, which I certainly don't have. Uh, yeah. Most reporters I know don't have. I mean, the vast, vast majority. And I wonder, you tend to, gra- you definitely uh, lean toward the humble side. Like, we joke a lot about this stuff and sort of the excesses of some of our peers. And, you know, they are always bragging and trying to get on TV. And blah, but, like, I think you've always been a pretty low-key, unimpressed-with-yourself guy. But if you could put set that aside for a minute, how do you feel having a law degree has helped you as a sports writer in your career? Um, if at all. Good question. I don't know. I mean, I think it's, it's, um, I mean, I basically knew, I spent one summer in a law firm. I had a, I knew I didn't want to be a lawyer for the next 40 years. Is that what, I, did yeah, you go yeah, to law yeah. school with the idea? I mean, it's a dumb yeah, question. I'm going to be like a lawyer. A path of least resistance and you need a graduate degree. What are you going to do? Right. Um, I spent one summer in a law school, in a law firm and I was just, I, I ate a lot of nice lunches. And yeah. I've never been so bored in my life. It was not for me. Um, so then I wrote to Sports Illustrated and I said, you know, it was right, it was right, I always say the story, it's right around the time of, it was after OJ and Mike Tyson and this sort of sports law intersection and they uh-huh. sort of said, hey, we got a guy, Lester Munson, you should be like Lester Munson. Oh, yeah. Um, and I don't know, I'm mean, sort of hooked. So, I mean, I, I think law school helps. You can read contracts and you can go through documents and you can, I, I think it helps you take a whole bunch of information and synthesize it into a story. But, um, you know, when I'm, whatever, even when I'm doing what I do to 60 minutes, I'm I do the tennis, I'm, I'm not sitting there, uh, writing about Roger Federer leaning on my right. legal education. But for a story like Jerry Richardson, I think it helps. You just take a whole bunch of strands and facts and build your argument and try to sort of synthesize all this material coming in. Well, I, cause I've always felt like you, one thing you have that I don't have, I mean, there are a lot of things, but like, is, um, my reporting People would be like, man, you're a really dogged reporter. Like, I, I hear that a lot. I'm not saying people don't yeah, usually say you're a great writer, but dog, dogged, you're a dog. Reporter, yeah. But it's not, like, my doggedness is just calling everyone. You know, it's like finding phone numbers and calling everyone. I feel like when it comes to documents, to digging, to finding, sort of knowing to look over here for this paper and for that paper, and, oh, this was filed there, I am um, a B- minus at best. And I feel like you're an A+. Plus. Oh, Do you disagree? I feel like no, you I mean, know where to look for something. Actually, the funny thing with documents is that a lot of times there's no standardization. And so one one jurisdiction, you call the clerk and they say, sure, I'd be happy to have it. And the other way, it's a lot of times it's just calling and seeing how it's done in that jurisdiction. Right. If it's if you're talking about pulling arrest records or you know, divorce filings, and every, every state is different, every jurisdiction is different. Um... Yeah, I mean, I think part of it's getting the documents, part of it's then having those documents and knowing where to... Um, someone just gave me an NBA shoe contract. Yeah. I don't know if I should talk about that. Yeah, sure. Um, no, so I was able to read this NBA shoe contract, and I and I, it occurred to me that... you know That could have been probably, stated two yeah, ways. Yeah. You could have actually gotten an NBA shoe contract. Maybe they were starting yeah, exactly. to get... exactly. I received an NBA <laughs> The air or time yeah, is right. coming out. I have my, uh, my signature brand coming out in 2019. Um, but... Um, no, but I, th- I don't think it's entirely different from calling people. I think it's just you make that extra phone call or you ask that extra question, and sometimes you know, all, all you're sacrificing is time, you know? Right, right. You always say, that's, that's a line I always quote you as saying. You could always make that one more call. Well, I got that from Gary Smith. Make the extra call. Just make, make the extra, extra call. call, exactly. Right. I, I don't think it's dissimilar necessarily. I mean, sometimes you need a document and you either have it or you don't, but a right. lot of times it, there, there's a remarkable amount of material in the public record, though. 
Yeah. Put it that way. You know, I was just thinking this while you're talking, like, um, so, you know, we're in our 40s, and we've both had careers that we probably wanted. I mean, this is a career, you're happy with your career, right? Yeah, I think we were all, parts of it, yes, parts of it, Sure. Yes, yeah, sure, sure, sure. And oh, I was absolutely. thinking, when we were coming up, so you, you and I started at Sports Illustrated, and we were basically fact checkers. We were reporters. And you start in this long hallway, we were both hired by Bambi Wolf, the late Bambi Wolf. Right. Um, you're in this long hallway. And you're checking stories, and you're fighting for a chance to write. And it was a, it was a hallway filled with you know really good people, you know people from Seth Davis to Lars Anderson to John Walters to Paul Gutierrez. I mean, there, there's this a you can Google these people now, and they've all had these really good careers. And I I, I kind of look back and I think like we all really wanted it, you know, like Grant Wall. Like there was a there's a real hunger to make it in this business. And I feel like when I talk to my students who I teach at Chapman. That's one thing they don't fully understand is like how badly you have to want it to get it. And I feel like you probably had the same thing I did that like you just wanted it or no. Am I being overly simplistic in a way? I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'd say it's different when you're getting a paycheck versus when you're a student. Right. I, mean, I don't know if I were an undergrad taking a class, if I would have been as dogged as I was when sure. you're getting a check and you want to advance. Yeah. Um, I always have this rap. I have, I feel like millennials get a bad rap. I agree. I love millennials. I feel like I'm around a lot of younger people. Yeah. Um, again, some at SI, some at 60 Minutes, and they, they've got the technology down. The notion that they're entitled, I find complete opposite. You give them, like, Wi-Fi and iced coffee and, like, a beanbag, and they're off and running. Um, as much as media's changed... Since, you know, I don't want to sound old man but, you know, yeah. things have obviously changed since we've been doing this. Um, I, I don't find that the people starting out are any less hungry or ambitious. No, I agree. I just think if you want to make it in this business. Yeah, no question. You have to be yeah, hungry. Exactly. Like, no like you, all right, you have to be willing. I would say, Mike, my, I, my internship after my sophomore year, I went to Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. I made right. five bucks right. an hour. I lived in an apartment right. by myself. I knew no one, like. I'll ask students, like, who's willing to move out of California? Uh, well, you know, I think you right. got to chase it, right? I mean, it's yeah, fair. Yeah, I, I, um, I think you chase it in different ways now. Sure. So maybe you're not working for the small town paper, but maybe you're, whatever, stringing for Patch. Right. I mean, I think there's... Does Patch still exist? Or bad example. I don't know. You're writing <laughs> for the, whatever, for the Huffington Post. All right, you know, yeah. we have, I get submissions all the time for Sports Illustrated. You don't have to pay me. And I always say, no, 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 you got to. Right. You, know, get, you don't need three bucks a word, but like... Don't write for free. Right. But, um, no, I, I think they're rungs to climb. They're just different than the ones, you know, I think same in, same in TV. You know, maybe you don't start out at doing weekend sports in Billings, Montana, before moving to Denver, before moving to New York. I mean, I, th I think the sort of the hierarchy has changed and the path has changed, but I still think um, there's sort of steps people take. Right. I'm going to go back in time here. You, um, mm -hmm. so you, uh, you spent time at Rip City, right? Yeah. The... The magazine, the Portland Trailblazers magazine, this was before you came to SI. And then years later, when you were at SI, you did a story about the Jailblazers. And this is when, there's a picture that I have in my head embedded. I think it was Dale Davis with a Santa hat standing in a parking lot. What do you remember about that experience? Uh, totally random. Um, I, fortunately, I burned a lot of bridges. Did you? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I'd worked for this organization. And so you I, worked, I love you, Portland. You worked for the 
Well, I think I think my checks were signed by the publishing. But you know, I was at the Blazers office multiple times a week. I went to all the games. It was my first job out of college. Was great writing job. for the writing for the team magazine. Rip City magazine. Okay. Yeah. And this was the Clyde Drexler years. It was great. It was a great year Jerome of my Kersey, life. Yeah. And like, you know, I made four hundred and fifty dollars, which in Portland, Oregon in the mid you know, in the I'll take it. Yeah. What, what's the Portlandia? You know, the dream oh, of the nineties. Yeah, right, right. yeah, I yeah, was yeah. like living the dream of the nineties. Um, you know, I'd go to NBA games and um I was the same age as the players, right. so like Tracy Murray. Remember Tracy Murray? UCLA. Shooter. Yeah, yeah. He'd be like, hey, come! I, I got a new uh, Sha- Shaq's Shaq CD came out. If you want to come by my place and listen to it, uh, I, I think I'll pass to, on that one. No, no. I remember going to Tracy Murray's like townhouse to listen to Shaq. We were the same age. We were right. exactly the same age of college. Or the notion now of going to an NBA player's right um, apartment to listen to music is um, it's something about how was that CD? Was that the good? Old, uh, Jack Diesel. Jack Diesel. Um, he did no, his, but yeah. uh, my, my point is it's the old Dazed and Confused line. You know, the athletes say the same age and we get older. Yeah. Not, not In your mid-40s, you don't get uh, not hanging out with many NBA rookies listening to music. But, um, oh, that Jailblazer story. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the players were obviously history sort of. This team is, un- that roster is unbelievable. Wait, who was it? That Wait, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you the really funny thing about the Jailblazer. I mean, just go through the we're list. We're talking, when was this, um, late 90s? No, no, it was early 2000s. I think 2000, early 2000s. All right. All right, go ahead, give us. You know, and it was no. I'll tell you the funniest part about this whole story. It was you know, knucklehead center. You know, it's Isaiah Ryder, Gary and Trent, Gary Trent, and Rasheed, Antonio Wingfield. Okay. Very good. I'll tell you the funniest thing about the the uh, the Jailblazers. Yeah. The three veterans who were sort of there to, you know, counterbalance the knuckleheadedness. Wait, Steve Smith. Steve Smith, all-time great guy. Sabonis? I think Chris Dudley was still there. Oh, yeah. You know, Yale, class of 87, and Steve Kerr. (laughs) And somewhere I have the Steve Kerr wrote a letter to Sports Illustrated. That we've joked about this since, Steve Uh Kerr and I have. That uh, he wrote a letter to Sports Illustrated saying he understood. It was was fantastic. Someone's got to dig this up. He understood the story, and he's not defending some of the behavior, but he wished it had more balance because there are good people on the team. Totally reasonable. The notion, A, that he would write a letter, right. former, former newspaper editor Steve Kerr, but the fact that you had this team, this hero I mean, someone's writing a book. Carrie Eggers in Portland's actually writing a book about the jailblazers. I, I would read that, actually. I mean, yeah. me too. Just yeah, total yeah. knuckle. You know, they bring in Zach Randolph. And <laughs> I mean, it's just, the, when I was there... You know, I remember they had a Christmas thing, and the guys were all on their phones, and Rashid didn't want to sign unless someone had a Sharpie. He didn't There's literally sign. a picture with the story. It's worth finding of Dale Davis <laughs> wearing a Santa hat, looking like he'd rather be dead. Than Playing stay. on his phone. Yeah. Um, but, but the irony to me is, like, three of the all-time great guys in the NBA were sort of the end-of-the-bench counterbalances to uh, Antonio Wingfield. Right. So was that a mistake? Um, you said you burned bridges. No, you look- no. There were a lot of people at the organization who thought... Um, you know, who didn't didn't like the story. But I it's funny, I was actually at a Portland I was at a Blazers game a few weeks ago. This is a lovely organization. Yeah. Great locker room. And uh I think all all wounds have healed. Right. We, we love the Blazers. But right. um it was it was it was strange to write about a team that I had such a close relationship with, to write about them unflatteringly. Right. But um I think history sort of borne out that this was an exceptional team. Right. You um I feel like you're really good. So I recently had a, a thing with Bleacher Report. Where and this is nothing bad, but they were. I was talking to one of the editors there, and they were saying how they're doing a story about some basketball team, and they wanted to send young, one of their younger writers because they thought a younger writer could relate with the 22-year-old, whatever point guard better than a 40-year-old guy could, 45-year-old guy could. Um, I've always felt like I relate pretty well with players. I know you you probably the same. You can talk to players. It doesn't matter if the guy. But it, I can see that. 
And I wonder, like, what do you think? I think it depends on the assignment. I mean, if you want to go play, you know, whatever. If you want to go play Mortal Kombat with, they're dating right. myself with that. But yeah, uh, that what, are the, what are the kids yeah. playing these days? Uh, well, you can always say Madden and be safe. All right. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I think it depends on the nature of the assignment. One, one thing I found really effective as I've gotten older and the athletes haven't is just making it clear I'm not here to be your pal. How do you do that? It sounds counterintuitive. How do you do that? You just sort of present yourself as a professional. I don't need to, like, dap you, and I don't need to pretend I'm interested in that we have these overlapping... I'm just sort of... I've found it to be just... It's not I don't give a shit, but it's more just I have a job to do, you have a job to do, let's have a conversation. And I feel like athletes have so many people trying to, you know pretend they're closer to them than they are. Right. That it's actually kind of refreshing to have someone just essentially come in and give the message of, I've got no agenda here, we're going to have a conversation, but we don't need to stay friends after this. Right. And I feel like, it's not confrontational at all. I mean, it's just sort of, I'm not the guy who is going to pretend to like you more than I do. I do you, so do you think it is a, would it be a negative to, I know what you mean though, it would be, is it a negative to go up at our age, Going up to you, I don't know, name whoever you want, CJ McCollum, or I'll go Glazer for you, and start talking to him about the new Kendrick Lamar. Exactly. Song. That's a great, actually, it's funny you say that. I actually yeah. did a Q&A with him. Yeah. It's exactly the We love that guy. Lehigh. Guy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's exceptional right. and uh, wants a career in media, so he ends up asking you more questions than you ask him. Right. But exactly. I mean, you present yourself as, I'm a media member, I'm doing my job, we're going to have a cordial discussion, but I'm not going to pretend to have this overlapping world with you that, right. doesn't, that doesn't exist. Um, yeah. I, I, didn't, I didn't articulate that well, but... Most of these guys are pretty good bullshit detectives. That's, that's a good right. way of putting it. That's a good way of putting it. Right. And, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's possible to have a thorough, engaging, revealing interview without pretending you found your soulmate necessarily. Right. So I was talking uh, briefly the other day with Steve Canella, our mutual friend, and... and uh, great guy. Great, great guy, one oh, of the best. Uh, yeah. And um, we talk about SI... And he actually, so next year, or this year, you're going every other week. He actually sounds genuinely sort of re-inspired by this idea. Like, I think he's like, we're going to be able to do better issues and blah, 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 and they're going to be thicker. And I just think it's, he's, I just think it's going to work. And um, how do you feel? I mean, because, you know, we're, yeah, we're traditionalists. We subscribe to this thing for years and years. Um, no, very similarly. Yeah. I mean, you think about what SI does best. Um, and you think about how fast the news cycle, even this Jerry Richardson story, I mean, we, we put it in the issue, but this posted online on a Sunday afternoon. By Sunday night, the guy had said he was putting the team up for sale. Right. Um, by Thursday, I, I think it's an important story. I'm glad we included it. It was exclusive. It was newsy. I mean, I think, but I think that fewer issues with more substance is, is, probably, uh, is probably a good thing. Yeah. And, um, no, I mean, I think you, you think about what your strengths are and for SI, it's, it's, it's longer pieces and pieces you might not get. And no one's picking up SI to say, Oh my, did you know that Patriots actually came back and won that Super Bowl? Right. Uh, the Falcons are winning. What happened? But do you still include a Super Bowl? Are there some traditions you have to do? I think for like the historical record or for what, what Peter King's going to get in terms of detail for the historical record for the Super Bowl. Yeah. Yes. Do you do it for... NBA conference championships, probably not. I mean, right. I think there are, there are a couple of events, especially if the issue comes out that that week and not mm-hmm. a week and a half hence. Um, I think there are a couple of ten pole events that you probably want 
SI's recap, but I think there are going to be fewer and fewer of those. And yeah, if, if this, if going bi-weekly but double in length opens up pages for, did I see that Tom Verducci piece on the Fresno Bees? Yeah. But I think there's a piece yeah, that sometimes that sort of get lost in the shuffle or there's a, a news day. Um, I think if you can have longer, more in-depth pieces, and again, like play to the, I think the strengths of SI, um, I think that's a good thing. Let me ask you a final question. Um, years ago, you had a cat named Sushi. Oh, and then one day, I show up, and the cat's not there. I have not seen this cat since. I'm just, I mean, it was a I young know. cat. Yeah, Where's I, Sushi? I, uh, <laughs> I need some media training on that one. Um, I think su- Sushi passed away. Oh, no. Is this weird for you? No. Doing this interview? No. Is it weird for you? No, but it's... Do you feel bad about Sushi? Um, Is know. there something you want to say to your kids? Or no, you're okay. Come on. Um... <laughs> My publicist will uh, be crafting a statement presently. Well, this is you are uh, by you are definitely the. Uh, I would say, I've known you for years and years. Obviously, our families right. are very close. You were the the closest friend I've had on this podcast. So uh, I was going to say, is this this? Uh, yeah, but I, I was going to say, I, I, wait, let me say one thing. I was listening to your podcast last night, mm-hmm. trying to figure out what the the vibe of these things. You know what really struck me? Yeah, I'll tell you two things. One is the absolute, and I think this is a good thing. Yeah, the range of guests. Not just in terms of what they do, but how they approach the profession. Yeah. So Wright Thompson approaches his job completely differently than Tyler, Tyler Kepner yeah. in the press box, or um, I don't know who am I playing? You know, Jessica Luther, right? Right. Great investigative reporter. I think it's very cool that we're in a profession that accommodates not just different personalities, but also different whole different philosophical approaches to the job. The other thing is, like, we're, we all roll our eyes at sort of fake news and lamestream media mm-hmm. and what's the, uh, you know, what's alternate facts. Oh, yeah. Um, even today, with more pressure and, and less time than ever, everyone you've talked to that I listened to talked about sort of word choice and, yeah. like, every word matters. And I feel like this this whole mainstream, lamestream media and, um, you know... Um, doesn't make you angry well, though. That's what I'm saying. It makes me furious. But a, well, I'm, I'm blanking on the term. What's the? I can't believe I'm. Uh, what does Trump call it? Fake news. Fake it's news. Whatever, fake news. Yeah. Um, so a, it's just, it infuriates me. Yeah. I think it's really dangerous. Yeah. But I also think like it is so wildly inaccurate. It's like saying NBA fake NBA. They never make baskets. Right. And you're like, demonstrably that is untrue. Yeah. I can point to the game last night where each team scored dozens of baskets. I feel a little the same thing. I mean, I'm listening to your pie. I'm thinking. Here, they want to talk about how every word matters and word choice, and they're thinking about things like, you know, how does this affect Jerry Richardson? They're thinking of with empathy. This this story I'm staring at right now, a whole weekend went by with conference calls and editors and yeah. lawyers and fact checkers. The notion that everyone is just sort of writing these hit pieces or doing drive-by journalism, it, it's so wildly I agree. counter to the reality that... Um, it's. I mean, I, I again. I think there's there's a real danger. I think you you could argue that right now the republic is being held up by journalism, and right. whether it's at the Times or the Post or, or whatever, that's that's actually playing a vital role. But also this, the notion that people are doing drive by journalism is so wildly counter to reality. I agree. Hasn't it also caused you to have a little sense of like, you know, I've never met Maggie Haberman or Gail Collins, just as an example. You know, people right. are all the Washington Post stars, right. but I feel a sense of kinship with them. Just in this no, business, absolutely. you know, which yeah, I never, I don't know if I had yeah, before in the no, same I'm way. Totally way, like all on the same team. Yeah, exactly. Right. There's, I feel like a lot of these rivalry. I think it feel like everyone feels like they're all on the same team. But I just the the inaccuracy of calling any of this stuff fake 
Right. What the New York Times has to go through, the consideration, the deliberation, the arguments, the fact-checking, the lawyering, um, it's, it's the antithesis of fake. There's my, there's my sermon. But you're, Amen. Seriously, seriously, your podcast really brought that home. That no, it's good. Everyone from the long-form writer to Tyler Kepner writing about, man, everyone's right. thinking, how am I going to do this accurately, truthfully, with empathy, editors changing words, fighting battles over phrases. Right. That is wildly different from fake news. I agree 100%. Like Thank that. you, John. All right. Thank you. Appreciate it. Anytime. All right. I want to thank today's guest, John Wertheim, for joining me on Two Writers Sing and Yang. You can follow John on Twitter at John, J-O-N underscore Wertheim, and read his stuff in Sports Illustrated. One can listen to Two Writers Sing and Yang on both iTunes and Anchor.fm. The reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the sizzling MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.